You're listening to sermon audio from River City Church in Fargo, North Dakota. River City Church exists to make disciples of Jesus who make disciples of Jesus through the gospel of Jesus. You can find out more about River City by visiting our website at www.rivercityfargo.org. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we make this good confession, this outward proclamation of trust that you will indeed stand firm. When we falter, you will not. When our love is weak, yours is unshakable. So I pray for my heart and our hearts as we come uh, to word this morning that we would be challenged and encouraged and built up that you, Holy Spirit, would speak to your people this morning as you fashion us into the likeness of Jesus. We ask you for your help and that you'd be kind to build up and equip your church with all that we need. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Have a seat. Uh, good morning, River City. We're going to get after it today. Uh, Psalm 31 is where we are. Our text for today, if you need a Bible, some folks will be coming around with Bibles so you can follow along. you find Psalm 31 on page 263 of the blue Bibles that are coming around, or on page 510 of the large print Bibles that we have in the back. No judgment if you happen to need a large print Bible. Um, my last visit to the eye doctor told me that maybe, not now, but maybe next time, I come in, I should maybe consider bifocals, and I told him he should stop talking. Um, So no judgment, Uh, page uh, 263 of the smaller print uh, blue Bibles we have in the back, or page 510 of the large print ones. Um, Psalm 31, where we're at today, Psalm 31 is a psalm of David, meaning it's just attributed to David as its author. Psalm 31 is directed to, you see it right in the text itself directed to the choir master, giving us an indication that this psalm is to be sung by the congregation, giving instructions to the person leading the choir, this is for the God's people to sing. So it's not only instructive for us as, as personal worship, as we tend to do when we open our Bibles or when we study it like this, like what does this have to say to me? But it's broadly given to God's people together. And Psalm 31, last bit of context, Psalm 31 is often grouped together with songs of lament or grief. But it's also, as we'll read here in a moment, layered with hope. So so it's like a a multi-layered sandwich where it's like lament and hope and lament and hope all stacked together. Together, And we'll see that as we read it today. So, so I want us to read and receive this psalm this morning. Let's go into it with this idea in mind that God is giving his people some instructions, some help in how to respond when we are desperate. A road map, if you will, or a path through pain. Now, Psalm 31 is also one of the longer psalms we've read to this point. Not the longest one we'll read this summer. There's a couple coming that are even longer. But today we have 24 verses to read and then 
study, so let's do that. Psalm 31, hear the word of the Lord this morning. To the choir master, a psalm of David. In you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame. In your righteousness, deliver me. Incline your ear to me. Rescue me speedily. Be a rock of refuge for me, a strong fortress to save me. For you are my rock and my fortress, and for your name's sake you lead me and guide me. You take me out of the net they have hidden for me, for you are my refuge. Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. I hate those who pay regard to worthless idols, but I trust in the Lord. I will rejoice and be glad in your steadfast love, because you have seen my affliction. You have known the distress of my soul. And you have not delivered me into the hand of the enemy. You have set my feet in a broad place. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am in distress. My eye is wasted from grief, my soul and my body also. For my life is spent with sorrow and my years with sighing. My strength fails because of my iniquity and my bones waste away. Because of all my adversaries, I have become a reproach, especially to my neighbors, and an object of dread to my acquaintances. Those who see me in the street flee from me. I have been forgotten like one who is dead. I have become like a broken vessel. For I hear the whispering of many, terror on every side, as they scheme together against me, as they plot to take my life. But I trust in you, O Lord. I say, you are my God. My times are in your hand. Rescue me from the hand of my enemies and from my persecutors. Make your face shine on your servant. Save me in your steadfast love. O Lord, let me not be put to shame, for I call upon you. Let the wicked be put to shame. Let them go silently to Sheol. Let the lying lips be mute which speak insolently against the righteous in pride and contempt. Oh, how abundant is your goodness, which you have stored up for those who fear you and worked for those who take refuge in you, in the sight of the children of mankind. In the cover of your presence, you hide them from the plots of men. You store them in your shelter from the strife of tongues. Blessed be the Lord, for he has wondrously shown his steadfast love to me when I was in a besieged city. I had said in my alarm, I am cut off from your sight, but you heard the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cried to you for help. Love the Lord, all you his saints. The Lord preserves the faithful, but abundantly repays the one who acts in pride. Be strong. And let your heart take courage, all you who wait for the Lord. This is God's word for us this morning. That cannot and does not fail. Amen? Now, this whole section of the Psalms that we're studying, and we'll 
get into it. Uh, you've heard it before as well. This whole section of the Psalms, from essentially Psalm 3 all the way through Psalm 41, all these Psalms speak to confrontation and conflict. Sometimes it's active conflict. David, as God's chosen king, is being pursued by those who, who hate him. Sometimes it's God's people in conflict or, or bondage or exile or at war. It's active conflict. And sometimes the conflict that we see in these psalms speaks to a slightly different kind. On the back end of something that's challenging or difficult or tragic, sometimes these psalms speak to what God's people are feeling or experiencing as the residual effects in pain or grief or discomfort. And this is one of the reasons I think we find the Psalms so rich as we read them and as we study them. Because these Psalms speak to real life. They don't just pull a clown mask down over the front of life and pretend everything is fine and happy. They don't. See, one of the most remarkable things about God's Word as a whole, and the Psalms in particular, is that there's something unique that applies to those who are God's people. That for those who belong to God, all of our griefs, every single one of them, doesn't stand alone. It is mingled together with some kind of hope. Not fake, but genuine hope. So we grieve differently than those who don't have hope. We suffer differently. We do desperation and pain by God's grace and the power of the Holy Spirit differently. And Psalm 31 speaks to that today. Because I think, if we're honest, we can identify with difficulty, right? We can identify with a little bit of desperation. We can identify with pain. And I think Psalm 31 is giving us a roadmap, a pathway we can walk to hope. Where the Lord God Himself, the one who created all things, who hung every star in the universe and stretched out their light across the cosmos... That same God is the one who is himself a refuge for us. A place of protection and safety and peace. And although my intro is already too long, let me give you one last little thing. Here's the challenge for us. We are fiercely independent people. Now some of that you might chalk up to our historical, cultural identity as pioneering entrepreneurs. Right? It's in our blood to like pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. But mostly I think it's just human nature. right? Where we seek to make our own way and do our own thing and carve out our own paths. So the question is, when we find ourselves desperate or in pain, do we demand of God something we think we deserve? Or do we disarm laying down our rights and asking God for His help. In our pain, do we pout? Showing that we're displeased with what's happening to us. Or do we plead with God, taking a posture of humility and asking for His assistance? In our desperation, do we demand or disarm? In our pain, do we pout or do we plead? I think Psalm 31 calls us in our pain and in our desperation to humble ourselves, to take Refuge in God who is full of mercy and grace. That's the big idea here this morning as we look at this psalm. That in our pain and in our desperation we're called to humble ourselves and take refuge in God. 
who is full of, of mercy and grace. So we're going to follow kind of the contours and of poetic language here in Psalm 31 and kind of follow this path to refuge, if you will. So here's the path. Five stepping stones, if you will, through these verses, these 24 verses on this path to God as our refuge. Step one, confidence in God. David displays two, crying out to God in our grief. Three, calling to God for help. Four, claiming his promises. And five, we see at the end, courageous praise. You can write those down if you want, but we're going to work our way through them and I'll remind you of them as we go through. So step one on this path to God as our refuge is an expressed confidence in who he is. We see this in the first eight verses of the psalm. David opens his lament, his grief song, with a declaration of confidence, which I find interesting. In you, O Lord, do I take refuge, David says. Right away at the beginning, his aim, his focus, is to take refuge in the Lord. Now, he'll talk about his distress. He'll talk about his specific needs for rescue and help. But he starts with confidence in God. In your righteousness, David continues, deliver me. He starts on the front end expecting God to be his refuge. Even though he's walking, excuse me, he's asking for for personal help, right? These first chunk of the verses have a lot of me language in them. David's going, I'm in distress. Help me. Rescue me. Even though he's using a lot of that me language, his focus is not inward, it's upward. There's a difference. Verse 2, he says, be a rock of refuge for me. There's that word refuge again, second time in two verses. Maybe there's a theme here. Make note. Verse 3, for you are my rock and my fortress, and for your namesake, he says, you lead me and guide me. David's confidence is that God will rescue him. Why? Because David's special? Because God surely can't live without David? No. He says this, but for God's own namesake, he leads and guides. Now, this might seem silly, but but I think in our context, the opposite of confidence in God here would be confidence in self. And the first step toward either seeking refuge in God or seeking refuge in self is found right here. Why should God come to my aid? Maybe you've asked that question or maybe you've felt that. Why should God help me and come to my aid? Because I deserve it? Now, as much as we might not want to admit it, often the first breath of frustration in the midst of difficulty that comes out of our mouths, exposes the condition of our hearts. Sorry if that's a little harsh first thing in the morning, but I think it's true. Does the first thing that escapes our lips, does it sound like this? Well, that's not fair. I don't deserve this. Or I deserve better. See, David doesn't say it's not fair. He anchors his grief, which is real and legitimate grief, his lament, his cry for in pain. He anchors it in confident praise that God will do what is best according to his own righteousness and for the sake of his own name. Verse 5, 
This is exemplified. David makes kind of a confession. He says, into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. One of the most, my my favorite um, titles given to God we've read here in these Psalms this summer is this one. O Lord, faithful God. Now if some of verse 5 sounds familiar to you, it's because Jesus himself uttered this phrase from Psalm 5 on the cross when he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And the gospel account of Jesus' crucifixion tells us he cried out, it is finished, and breathed his last and gave up his spirit. If anyone deserved better, it was Jesus. R.C. Sproul Jr. was addressing the, the pretty common question people ask, right? Maybe you've asked this question or maybe you've fielded this question. Why do bad things happen to good people? Sproul's answer is it only happened once and he volunteered. Right? Which is as funny as it is profound. He's talking about Jesus, by the way. Right? David's confidence is in the Lord. Look at verse 6. I hate those who pay regard to worthless idols, but I trust in the Lord. I will rejoice and be glad in your steadfast love. And hear this. You have seen my affliction and you know the distress of my soul. And you have not, verse 8, you have not delivered me into the hands of my enemy. You have set my feet in a broad place. It's a place of sure footing. See, he doesn't shake his fist. He moves towards God as his refuge. So how do we do this? How do we move towards God, take steps toward refuge in times of trouble? Well, here's what David does. One of the ways he does this is by reminding himself out loud of all the things that are true about God. Just from this section, here's some of the things David says, these are true about who God is. He is righteous in all his ways. He is strong. He's a rock. He's a fortress. He leads and guides. He redeems. He's the faithful God. He is full of steadfast love. He sees my affliction. He knows my distress. And he has not delivered me over, but he sets me on solid ground. David's saying these things out loud. Yes, so the congregation can sing them. But you have to know he's reminding himself. In the midst of pain or distress, where is our confidence? So step one in our move toward God as our refuge is a confession of confidence in Him. That's the first stepping stone towards refuge. Here's the second in the text on the path. Crying out to God in our grief. We see this in verses 9 through 13. Verse 9, David asks for God to be gracious because he's broken. I'm a broken man. Be gracious to me. And then listen to his cry in verses 9 and 10. Be gracious to me, O Lord, because... I'm in distress. My eye is wasted from grief. I've seen nothing but grief. My soul and my body is wasted from grief. My life is spent in sorrow. My years with sighing. My strength fails. My bones waste away. Do you have a picture here of someone in strong health? No. 
Someone who's in deep distress, whose life, body, soul is wasting away is how David describes it. And he's just talking about the the internal personal realities. Look at verse 11, because it's not just internal struggle, it's external struggle. He's got adversaries. I have become a reproach to my neighbors, he says. My neighbors hate me. My acquaintances dread me. It's essentially, oh great, here comes David. Those who see me in the street flee from me. Don't need an explanation on that one. I've been forgotten, so he's alone. I've become like a broken vessel, so he feels pretty worthless. I live in terror and fear. My life is over. Right? This is clearly more than stress in David's life. David is in full-on distress, right? And he's talking about both internal issues, internal pain, and external pain. Some caused by others, like we read in verses 11 through 13. Enemies, wicked people who sin against him and hurt him and dislike him. And we've experienced that before. You've ever been in conflict with someone who doesn't like you very much? No? I'm sure I'm on a few people's lists. You probably are too. And, and David, verse 10, slips in this little because statement there too. He says, my strength fails and I'm overloaded with grief. Why? Did you catch that? Because of my iniquity? Because of my own sin, David says? So it doesn't really matter how we ended up here, how David ended up here, whether it's by his own sin or the sins of others against him, he finds himself here in this place of despair and distress and his cry out to the Lord is, I need you. I need your grace in my life. I don't know about you, but my conversations with God don't always sound like David's, at least not often enough. And I think either we don't cry out to God like this because we either think that, on one hand, well, God won't actually be gracious to us, like there's no way He really could because we're too far gone. Or, on the other side, we we don't ask, we don't cry out because we don't actually think we need His grace. So we either keep silent or we cry out to other people. Now we see this in the realm of social media all the time. And I know social media is a fun uh, whipping boy for, uh, for things like this, but, but it's true. Anyone familiar with the term vague booking? Anybody? A few people? Let me just educate you for a second. It's the post on Facebook or Twitter that looks like this. I'm so angry right now. Or some people. Or this again with zero detail or context. Or just a single angry face emoji. Right? Why do we do things like this? Can I just be dangerously honest for a second? I don't want to hurt feelings. Feel free to email, you, email me. My name is Jake. My email is jake at rivercityfargo.org. You, you're, I'm not giving you one of the other elders' emails. You can email me if you think I'm being too harsh. But this is often the opposite of crying out to God for His grace. Like the polar opposite. It is, I think, far too often crying out for attention and permission to dispense grace from your, uh, to yourself or to receive some kind of like ac- affirmation from other people. When I, when I say something vaguely, 
I'll just use a relationship here. I can say something. Devin can ask me, how are you doing? How are you doing today, Jake? How's your your week going? And I can be like, it's okay. Now, it might be that I'm just saying my week's okay. Not great. Not bad. But is there part of it in the back of my mind where I'm like, please ask me more because I'd like to tell you, but I really can't. Unless you ask, then I can. Right? Devin's really good about asking me how my heart is, so he asks me that a lot, and I just, thanks, brother. Right? Or, or have you ever heard or used the phrase, well, you just have to give yourself grace? Now, I know the context there is usually to be honest about your weaknesses, right? You can't do everything. Pobody's perfect, right? It's, nobody's perfect, right? So I get the idea of, quote-unquote, giving yourself grace in that context, but I, but I think it dilutes the meaning of grace just a little, Grace, I think, in its nature is given and received. And while you can give yourself something, it's not quite the same. right? You can buy yourself a Christmas present. You can treat yourself. But it's not quite the same as if someone else says, hey, I would like to give you this and gift you something. Rather, when I fall short, when I'm short-tempered or impatient with my kids or someone driving on the road, in a way that I deem inappropriate, when I feel weak, when I fail again, rather, I think, than giving myself grace, I think I need to receive the grace of God that is mine in full in Christ Jesus. I think that's a more accurate way to understand grace. And I think that it's different and better. I need a different source of grace than one I can produce. The Apostle Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, he says, Remember, you used to be dead. (laughs) You were dead in your sin. But God, being rich in mercy because of his great love, even when we were dead in our sins, he made us alive with Christ. By grace, Paul says, you have been saved. And he did this to show just how marvelous his grace is. Immeasurable riches is how Paul describes it. And so I think a a full picture of the grace of God is, is what we need to cry out to God like this. Because if we realize, if I realize and I recognize in my weakness and in my failings that I can't manufacture enough grace for myself, and I recognize that I am never too far gone where God's grace can't reach me, if I recognize both of those things, and I mean, if we were once dead and now we can be made alive, that's pretty far, right? If we recognize those two things, then I think it enables us to say, God, I I need your grace. It enables us to then cry out to the one who can give us exactly what we need. That's step two on the path towards seeking God as our refuge, crying out to God. Step three we see in this text, is to call to God for help. Verses 14 through 18. Now, cry out and call out are similar, and maybe I'm just mincing words here. Gee, Jake, you really wanted to make this five points instead of just four today. Right? That's not it. I promise that's not it. At least I, as best I know my own motivations, that's not it. Verses 9 through 13 seem to be David saying, God, I need you. And then in verse 14, 
excuse me, uh, yeah, 14, David seems to be saying, God, I need you, and here are my requests. They're related, but they're a little different. Look at verse 14. He goes, so I trust in you, O Lord. That's that reminder of his confidence and trust in God. Verse 15, so he says, rescue me from the hand of my enemies. Make your face to shine on me. The, the picture there is, would you look upon my life with your favor, O God? Because I'm in the darkness and I need your light. Save me in your steadfast love, he says. Let not me, put to sh- let not me be put to shame, but instead let the wicked be put to shame. Let the lying lips be mute. And the feeling there, and I apologize if this is a word you're not allowed to use in your house. I know we have kids in the room. But David is praying that the Lord would shut up the mouths of the, of the wicked. That's what he's praying, that they would be silenced. So I spaced that out. So I didn't say the word all at once. I spaced it out. David, confident in God, honest about his need, now asks God to help him. And this is where I think we get frustrated with our own experiences in prayer, our own prayer lives, if you will. See, we often move right to specifics, right to helps, right to requests. And then when they aren't answered the way that we think they should be in the time in which we think they should be answered, we think, well, this doesn't work. Tried that. I tried asking God of of the things that I needed, and I told him where I needed help, and yet I don't have an answer yet, so this is a broken system. Now, I'm, I'm not saying that Psalm 91 or the way to approach this is some kind of magic formula. If we do the steps right in the right order, then we get, you know, this thing put together, and then God will say, okay, you did it right, now I'm going to answer your prayers. I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is that for our own hearts, that our prayers will be more effective and our experience and communion with God will be richer and deeper if we start with who God is and our desperate need for Him before we bring Him our list. And hear me on this. This is a personal weak spot in my own life. Too often, I move, my prayers jump right to this point. I skip steps one and two and go right to three. And then I wonder, why do I still feel anxious or burdened? I've made my requests known to Him, but I've not actually unloaded them onto God because my confidence isn't actually in Him. Or I'm not convinced he actually cares about the things that I'm asking him. Even this week has been strange. Nothing super crazy happened this week. It was a pretty normal week. And yet, almost first thing Monday morning and on, I have felt only what I can describe as a weight. A weariness. And the Holy Spirit, through this psalm, has been working on me. Because I know there are weaknesses and shortcomings and areas of growth in my own life. I know there's an enemy who hates me. So both internal weaknesses and external spiritual warfare. And rather than just go to God and say, God, you are, you are so good and I am in need. Rather than do that first, I just go to like, well, you got to keep grinding. Right? Now I'm grateful that the Holy Spirit is at work conforming me to the image of Christ, that by His grace, I'm not the same person I am today as I was yesterday. Hallelujah. But I need to hear this just like you might need to hear this. Jesus Himself is saying, it's okay, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. My yoke is easy, my burden is light. 
And this, I think, actually enables me to get real about the things I'm asking God. To ask God for big things with boldness, not because of arrogance, because I'm confident in Him that He actually cares, that He actually knows, and He actually will answer. Not trusting in our own strength or our creativity and not seeking help elsewhere, but calling out to God for specific help because we know that in Him we will find help. Calling out to Him with our specific needs. That's the third step on this path toward refuge in Psalm 31. Step four on the path is claiming God's promises. Verses 19 through 22. Look at all of the for sure, like done statements that David gives us in this psalm. Verse 19. He has already stored up and worked, past tense, goodness. He's stored up goodness and he's worked goodness for those who fear Him and take refuge in Him. There's that refuge word. Verse 20, God hides and protects and shelters His people. Those are like absolute statements. Verse 21, He has already shown steadfast love. He's already shown it. Verse 22, God has heard me in the past when I cried out for help. These are for sure things. Now, I think there's many from our theological tribe who tend to shy away from the word claim because of its abuse among those who preach a false kind of prosperity-laden gospel, which is no gospel at all, small g. But maybe here we can redeem that word here for just a moment this morning. See, David claims these promises for God's people. David states that God stores up goodness and works goodness for those who fear him. And David's implying, well, that's mine. He he stores up and works goodness for me. He's heard me in the past. He's shown love to me. He's proven his love to me. And I believe that God will do it again. God promises to be a hiding place and a shelter. And David says, Well, that's mine too. If God is God, and if He's good, and if He's righteous, and if He always does what is right, if we know that God hears the cries of those who are in need, and we know we are in need, if we know that God listens to the call for help of the weary and the oppressed and the broken, then everything that God promises from Himself to His people are ours. So I don't want us to be afraid of actually believing that if you belong to Jesus, if you believe in Him by faith, then every promise of God in Christ Jesus is yours. It's okay, you can say amen to that. Right? All the promises of God find their yes, find their affirmation, find their amen in Jesus, Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. So when Jesus says, I am with you always, Matthew 28, we can say amen. That's mine. He is with me. When Jesus says uh, that he gives his peace so that our hearts need not be troubled, John chapter 14, we can say, amen, that's mine. 
I can have Jesus' peace. My heart does not have to be troubled right now. When we read Paul's reminder in Romans chapter 8 that God works all things together for good, for those who love God and are called according to his purpose, we can say, Amen, that's mine too. See, sometimes we find ourselves in unbelief. Either we don't believe that these promises are really ours, so we're unsure and we waffle. We're even unsure if we should even ask them, ask God for them. And we remain stuck in our powerlessness. Or, rather than God's promises being sufficient, we make up our own promises and claim those. That's what we see with so much kind of popular understanding and, and self-help, if you will, kind of resources. We formulate a promise for ourselves that we should be rich or fulfilled or, 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 or affirmed in some way. And then we claim that promise and attempt to speak it into existence or manifest it in our lives. And that's just emptiness. It's like eating the air. Rather, we have a banquet table of God's already revealed promises in front of us. Even just the one David, David, the ones David mentions here, that he's good, that God does good, that he protects his children, that he hears us, that he responds to our prayers, that he's done it before and he'll do it again. Even if we just had this little meal of God's promises, we claim the promises that are ours in Christ Jesus, and in doing so, we move closer to the refuge and place of rescue in times of trouble and pain. These are ours. And finally, our final step in the path towards refuge are the last two verses in the psalm. Courageous praise. Now it's kind of like, if you're reading this text, it's kind of like the choir master turns from David, the soloist, and turns to the rest of the congregation, the choir of the saints, and tells them to sing these two lines of this song. Verse 23. Love the Lord, all you His saints. The Lord preserves the faithful, but it abundantly repays the one who acts in pride. Oh, church, he's saying, love the Lord. Know that he will preserve the faithful, that he will repay the one who acts in pride, the one who is more self-assured than God-assured. Verse 24, be strong and let your heart take courage, all you who wait for the Lord. There's a lot of storm language we've looked at in these last couple of psalms. And have you, ever, have you been caught in a storm? Right? It starts to rain immediately. And what do you tend to do? Well, sometimes you just stand there and you're like, I love playing in the rain. But other times you're like, we need to get out of this as quickly as we can. And so we run. Right? We go from where we are to a shelter or a car or a building or something. And what do you do when you finally make it inside? Whew. Right? Most people do. If you're, you know, normal. Right? You, get, you finally make it under shelter and whew, deep breath or a sigh. Thank God we made it. That's praise, by the way. It might only come out of a, as a breath, but you're worshiping there something. Thank you, Lord, that you've guided us safely to this shelter from the storm. And even though the outside still might be raging, you've led us and brought us to this place of safety and security. 
See, when God's people find refuge in Him, a worship service should break out. If you were standing outside the shelter, when people make it inside, you should be able to hear people start praising. That's the picture. Doesn't mean the storm is over. Doesn't mean the trial's completed. Doesn't mean the pain has all been relieved. But when we find our refuge in God, we can, I think, filled with and empowered by the Holy Spirit, sing in the storm and praise God, even if there's still pain. That is the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 8, that we can be killed by all these things all day long and praise God because he's assured us that in all these things we are more than conquerors, Paul says, through him who loved us. That nothing, nothing can separate us from the love of God that is ours in Christ Jesus. This is the pathway to refuge in the storm. And you see, this is for us as well. As most of the psalm is from the perspective of David, the individual, but it is for the congregation to sing. It's for the collective us to consider, to remind one another in community, as we sing and agree with the songs the lyrics on the screen that we're singing together, to remind one another to have confidence in God, not in self. To sit with each other, and rather than seeking pity and attention, to sit together and to cry out to God in dependence, trusting that He knows every affliction and all of our distress. To to labor together in prayer, asking in faith, and in humble confidence for God to meet our specific needs. As Marty said a number of weeks ago in the psalm he preached, I don't think it was the last one, I think it was the one before, but it could have been the last one, I don't remember. Praying with specifics. Asking God by faith to meet very specific needs. And trust that he will answer them by the means and in the timing that he sees fit. To lay hold of, to to claim, if you will, that all the things that are true in Jesus for us are ours now. That there is power and peace and victory over sin today. That there's forgiveness for all that we've done. That there is grace and mercy that is full here, now, and It will come to glorious completion when we close our eyes in death or Jesus comes back and we meet him in the air. And that we should not be timid in our worship, but courageous to proclaim out loud that God is good, that every day of our lives is secure in his hands. So we can wait with hope and we can sing with courage of the goodness and faithfulness of God. In our pain, we don't pout and demand We humble ourselves and we plead with God. And there, Psalm 31 says, we will find Christ as our refuge. In Him we will find safety and peace. Let's pray. Father, I pray you'd make this psalm, the prayers from this psalm, the declarations from this psalm, 
help us to believe what we are reading and singing and saying this morning. All the more. That we would pray that in you, O Lord, do we take refuge. And we would find on the back end of that statement of belief, our hearts actually being filled with courage, our strength being restored. I pray that you would meet us in our place of need and cause your people to worship you with courage. Thank you that you meet us in our place of brokenness and need, and we pray you do that now as we come to the communion table, remembering the beautiful and fullest expression of your love in sending Christ Jesus, perfect, unblemished, to take our sin and brokenness on himself that we might receive his life. What an expression! of your love, O faithful God. Cause us to worship you, we pray. Amen.